As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm delighted that today's episode is sponsored by Harry's. As I hope you know, I won't take sponsorship from a company unless I believe in the product. And I love Harry's. Especially what I really like is how they went against the system. As you probably realise, I've never been so hot at following rules myself. And nor are they. Two best friends, Jeff and Andy... They were fed up with being overcharged for razors, so the best way to fight this was to start their own razor company, Harry's, four years ago. I'm pleased they did, as for my sensitive skin, it's the best shave I've ever had. I love it. I genuinely do. Like my music recommendations? Don't just take my word for it. Get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £2.95. For this, you'll get your trial set delivered to your door, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and a travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash true crime or one word. Do that right now. That's harrys.com forward slash true crime. So on with today's episode, a huge thank you to my new supporters on Patreon this week. Mike McCann, Laurel Christick, Krista Furioso, I hope I've got that right, Red and Laurie DeWalt. Your support is much appreciated. For today's episode, we head back to May 1991. Assuming you were born then, do you recall what you were doing in 1991? Well, let me help you with some of the music of the time. In the UK charts, Cher was number one with the Shoop Shoop song, It's In His Kiss. But number two for me was a bit of a classic. Last Train to Transcentral with KLF featuring the Children of the Revolution. Love it. Do you like that song? At number five was one-hit wonder Chesney Hawks with I Am The One And Only. Do you remember that as well? A housemate of mine at university looked just like him and boy did he get some stick over the three years. In the US, High Five topped the charts with I Like The Way, brackets, the kissing game, close brackets. That one seems to have bypassed me, which is probably no bad thing. But I certainly recall the song from the week before, Joyride by Roxette. Sometimes I feel like I sound like Alan Partridge when I'm doing this. No, you're supposed to say no. In the news, we saw the 365th and final episode of Dallas. Winnie Mandela was sentenced to six years for complicity in kidnapping and beating of four youths, one of whom died. She was freed pending appeal. And Queen Elizabeth became the first British monarch to address the US Congress. Finally, a treaty was signed in Angola this month ending the 16-year civil war. In sport, 
This was the last day of Test cricket for the Hampshire and West Indies legend Gordon Greenwich. My dad was a huge Hampshire cricket fan and we spent hours watching him destroy bowling attacks. In football, Manchester United beat Barcelona 2-1 to win the Old Cup Winners' Cup in Rotterdam. Mark Hughes scored both of the goals to give English clubs a winning return to European competitions after their five-year ban was lifted. And Spurs beat Forest 2-1 in the FA Cup final. This was the final where Gaza damaged his knee, delaying his move to Lazio in Italy. Today we head to beautiful Northern Ireland. Coleraine is on the north coast, around 55 miles northwest of Belfast. With a population of about 25,000 people, Coleraine is the main town of the world-famous Causeway Coast, which attracts over 3 million visitors per year. I'm not sure if you've been there, but the Giant's Causeway, which is incredible, it's just a 25-minute bus ride from here. Probably the most famous person born and brought up in this area is the actor, James Nesbitt. Especially when I was younger, people used to say I looked like him, but personally, I've always thought I was much more attractive, but there we go, I guess. Colin Howells was a respected doctor in Coleraine, and he lived with his wife Leslie and three children. In 1990, Leslie was pregnant with her fourth child. A big part of their life, as for many people in this part of Northern Ireland who are deeply religious, was the church. Colin was a very charismatic man, and he enjoyed preaching to the congregation where he was highly respected. It's still central to the social life of many in the area, and it's an incredibly strong and close community. Colin and Leslie Howe were members of the Coleraine Baptist Church, and they spent a lot of their time there. It was really the focal point of their life. Another member of that church was Sunday school teacher, Hazel Buchanan. Hazel had met her husband Trevor, a policeman, when she was 17. Hazel was by all accounts a very attractive, blonde lady, and immediately there was some attraction between Colin and Hazel. And despite their strong religious beliefs, the two had soon started an affair. They had the opportunity to meet away from their partners as Colin played the guitar and often went to Hazel's house to give her private lessons. It was a very passionate and highly sexual affair, and the couple had a secret code they used on the phone to let the other know there was an opportunity to meet. As well as Hazel's home, the two often had sex at Colin's surgery in the dentist chair. Hmm, not sure about the eroticism of that, are you? Due to her struggle with her conscience, Hazel often asked Colin to give her gas until she lost consciousness before he had sex with her. The two even maintained their feelings for each other, despite in the summer of 1990, Hazel discovering she was pregnant. Colin convinced her to have an abortion, even though this was against their religious beliefs and against the law in Northern Ireland. But Hazel travelled to London for a secret abortion and the affair resumed on her return. What happened next had an air of inevitability. They were caught. It was a member of the congregation who saw them together. Both were counselled by church leaders and made to tell their partners about the affair, which they did. Clearly, as you can imagine, there were lots of tears and unhappiness and two devastated partners. But Colin and Hazel promised to end the affair right there and they begged forgiveness. On one occasion, Hazel's husband Trevor and Colin stood in front of the altar at the church and shook hands in front of the pastor. Trevor and Leslie, the two slighted partners, they drew strongly on their faith to forgive Hazel and Colin. 
And this is where they should all have lived happily ever after, putting the past behind them. But sadly, as too often with this podcast, this was not the case. Hazel and Colin were unable to stop meeting and they continued to do so in secret. It was 1991 and divorce was not an option in their religious community, so it seemed the only possibility for the future would be to keep on meeting in secret. But Colin had another idea. Desperately unhappy due to Colin's continuing infidelity and the sudden death of her beloved father Henry in May 1991, Colin's wife Leslie made an unsuccessful suicide attempt that same month. Colin started to think that if both of their spouses were dead, then they would be free to be together. But when he told Hazel this, she called his plan crazy. But Colin was not to be put off. And as he said in a letter to Hazel, let this be our secret. And the suicide attempt for his wife really gave Colin the idea of how he could make it look like both their partners had committed suicide. So just 11 days after his father-in-law's death, the plan was executed. Leslie was the first to die. She was killed on her son Daniel's second birthday on May the 18th, 1991. Before he murdered his wife Leslie, Colin blocked the bedroom door where his children slept with a hockey stick to prevent them getting out. As his wife slept peacefully on the sofa, Colin Howell attached a hosepipe to his car exhaust and put the other end into his wife's mouth so she'd be filled with the deadly carbon monoxide fumes. Although sleepy, she woke with a start, so he jumped on her, holding her down, until she drifted first into unconsciousness before death. Tragically, as she was dying, she still found the energy to call out to her young son Matthew, who was asleep nearby, but her calls for help weren't answered. We could only imagine her horror in those seconds before she lost consciousness. I wonder if it felt like a dream, a bad dream. Earlier, Colin had worked out just how much garden hose he would need to reach his victims from the car exhaust in the garage in order to kill them. During his son Daniel's second birthday party, he paced the exact distance out, counting the yards from the car to the room where he would kill his wife. Once she was dead, Colin dressed his wife before hauling her lifeless body into the boot of his car and then he drove to Hazel's house. Earlier that evening, Hazel had made her unsuspecting husband Trevor a tuna sandwich which contained tranquilizers. Sleeping in his bed in just his boxer shorts, Colin planned to kill him the same way he'd killed his wife, even using the hosepipe. But as he placed one end in Trevor's mouth, Trevor immediately awoke and desperately fought for his life before Colin managed to overpower him and hold him down long enough to be overcome by the poisonous fumes. As Howell murdered Trevor, Hazel, his wife, waited outside the door and her young children Andrew and Lisa were sound asleep in the room next door. Once more, when he was dead, Trevor was dressed and carried to the car after they burned the hosepipe in Hazel's fire. Howell then headed the five miles to the coastal town of Castle Rock to complete the final stage of his plan. It was two members of Coleraine Baptist Church who responded to Colin's call the next day about his missing wife. They headed to Leslie's father's house in Castle Rock and it was in his garage behind his home, high above the village, known as the Apostles, that the bodies were found. The ignition had been switched on but by the time the missing pair were discovered 
the car engine had stopped running. Hazel's husband Trevor, wearing jeans and a jumper, was sitting slumped low in the front driver's seat, his right knee in the joint of an open door with its window open. Leslie was dressed in a t-shirt and leggings. She was lying on her back in the boot, where she'd been listening to her favourite religious music on her personal stereo. Alongside her were three framed family photographs, one of her in her student nurse's uniform on the day she graduated, and others of her brother, her father, and her mother May, who died in 1986. One end of a vacuum cleaner hose had been connected to the car's exhaust pipe, and the other end was near her head. When the police came to see Colin, he used a suicide note from his wife's previous suicide attempt, which she didn't know he'd found, to back up the story that the two spouses had killed themselves due to Hazel and Colin's affair. Many in the Colerain Baptist Church community knew of the affair, and the community just came to believe that Leslie and Trevor, who were both 32, could not live with their partner's betrayal and had killed themselves. Some had suspicions and thought it was odd that they killed themselves together, but these weren't given any credence at the time. In this podcast, we've seen some amazingly strong police investigations, whereas others have been frankly incompetent. This investigation certainly fell into the second category, and Howell and his lover Hazel behaved stoically when told of their deaths, and at the funerals they sadly followed their spouses' coffins, which were buried just yards apart in Colrain Cemetery. On the day of his wife's funeral, a callous Colin gave Leslie's brother the tape he'd placed in her personal stereo as a memento. That's pretty cold and callous, isn't it? A year after the police launched an investigation, a coroner's court inquest said the deaths were suicides. Both victims haven't been poisoned by carbon monoxide fumes. The pair had literally got away with murder. Colin and Hazel decided not to go public with their relationship until three years later when they holidayed together with their children. But by 1996, the affair had begun to fizzle out, especially for Hazel, and she ended their relationship and later went on to marry another senior policeman, David Stewart. Howell too went on to marry again, an American lady, Kyle, with whom he had five more children. After a violent three-year marriage, Kyla left the US with her two children. As part of developing a new life, she'd quickly become part of the local community by attending the University of Ulster and joining a local church in Castle Rock, the place where Howell had left the dead bodies. At this church... She was introduced to Howell, then a father of four, at Bible study in December 1996. Within five months the two were married and Kyle was quickly pregnant. In an article in the Sun newspaper, Kyle spoke about Howell saying, I really looked up to him as a teacher. His biblical knowledge was amazing. He knew it all and he would preach on what kind of people we ought to be and about sexual immorality. It was 1998 when everything got too much for Howell and he felt he had to share his feelings with his wife. Kyle sat stunned at the kitchen table, listening as Howell told her everything about his infidelity, murder and the staged suicides. Worse was to come. Kyle wanted him to confess immediately, but he wouldn't, threatening her that if she ever breathed a word to anyone about this, he would kill himself, which would so devastate their children. Carl was beside herself wrestling with this dilemma, but she was also wondering just who on earth had she really married. This wasn't the deal she brought into. 
Carl tried to tell members of her church, but Howell was so respected among them that one church elder told her, I don't want to hear it, it's before the cross. You shouldn't tell on other people before that time in their life. But Howell's life was about to fall apart, which resulted in a complete crisis of faith. His son Matthew, the boy that a dying Leslie had called out to, died after a fall in Russia. Just 22, he was killed when he slipped and fell 40 foot down a stairwell at an apartment block in St Petersburg in April 2006. Howell had also been cheating on his new wife, Kyle. He'd become addicted to pornography. And he was also facing a police investigation for sedating and sexually assaulting women at his dental practice. He was also heading towards bankruptcy. After murdering his wife, he'd inherited over £200,000 from Leslie's will, £27,000 from the estate of her dad, a £120,000 life insurance payout and a £54,000 endowment policy. But how was greedy? He'd lost over £350,000 in a scheme which had claimed to find missing gold in the Philippines. Howell expected he would make £20 however in reality he only acquired a few brass ammunition boxes containing silver coins worth about £30. Oh dear. Howell initially invested £100,000 but over six months he doubled down steadily investing more after being told that the gold was buried under booby-trapped tunnels. He sold his shares in two dental practices and attempted to persuade friends to invest. Howell's faith wavered, and he believed that this and the death of his son were punishments from God. He was encouraged to come clean by Kyle, who told him, You must confess. You will never be a free person unless you confess and be really honest. So Howell went to a church pastor, then a police station, and confessed all. Both he and Hazel were arrested and charged with murder. Colin's trial was first in December 2010. He pleaded guilty to the two murders and was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 21 years. In addition, he was sentenced to five and a half years for the indecent assaults on five female patients at his dental surgery. All the women were sedated at the time. The sentence will run concurrently. Hazel, who denied the murder charges, was tried in February 2011. She stuck to the story that she'd been under the spell of her narcissistic and delusional lover. She said she'd been terrified of Howell, another of his victims, a vulnerable woman enticed into his evil web. And Howell was the star witness for the prosecution. He was confident and he appeared very upbeat and cheerful giving evidence. Whereas Stuart the one-time nursery nurse Hazel Buchanan, remained stock still, composed and silent in the courtroom. They sat within feet of each other, with Howell often looking at his former lover, whereas Hazel Stewart refused to make eye contact. But Howell was determined to show she was as guilty as he was, spending some 16 hours in the dock giving evidence. Some friends suggested this was because he'd never forgiven her for ending the affair. Howell said, Hazel and I were waltzing together all the time. All of the sidestepping was done together. I may have been the lead partner in the waltz, but Hazel was dancing in cooperation with that dance. 
I wasn't dragging her around the floor, making her put her foot to the left or the right. She was doing it in perfect harmony, on her own, and willingly. The difficulty for Hazel was that she'd admitted being part of the conspiracy, although under duress. She didn't dispute that she'd disposed of the hosepipe, she'd washed the sheets, and even wafted the remaining carbon monoxide out of the bedroom, and given how her husband's clothes in which to dress his dead body. Probably the most damning evidence was her admission that she'd stood outside the bedroom door, motionless, as her lover murdered her husband in the couple's bed, with her children sleeping next door. Hazel Stewart was convicted of murder under the law of joint enterprise and sentenced to 18 years in prison. She has shown little real remorse for her part in the well-planned crime, the judge told her. He continued that she was more concerned about her own future than the victim's. As Stewart sat in the dock of a packed courtroom, her head bowed, the judge claimed her tearful expressions of regret to police after her arrest in January 2009, interviews that were played during her trial, were more about the situation she faced than sorrow for what she did. It is noteworthy that throughout her police interviews, she said far more about the effect of those events on herself, her children and her present husband than she did about the effects of the murders and all the others whose lives have been ended and blighted by these events. He said, I consider that she has expressed little real remorse for what she did, rather the sorrow and regret which she expressed to the police, which largely be- was largely because of the situation in which she found herself, and not for the events in which she played her part. Her children Andrew and Lisa, and her second husband David Stewart, a retired police superintendent, watched from the public gallery. Stewart didn't react at all as the guilty verdicts were delivered, as her children sobbed. Her daughter Lisa cried out, It's not fair, I love you, as her mother was taken away to begin her sentence. Her children, along with her husband, continued to believe in her innocence and visit her regularly. Hazel, who is eligible to apply for parole in 2029, has since launched three unsuccessful appeals against her sentence. She is still in prison. After the trial... Howell was also questioned about the death of his father-in-law, Harry Clark. He was 69, an ex-Royal Marine, Sergeant Major and Company Director, who had collapsed and died at Howell's home just 12 days before he killed his wife and Harry's daughter, Leslie. Harry, who'd been suffering from flu and staying in the spare bedroom, is believed to have had a heart attack in the kitchen of the house. He was found when the Howells returned home from a night out, and although Howell has rejected claims that he killed his father-in-law, Leslie's brother is not so sure, saying, My dad died very quickly while superficially healthy. I do wonder did Colin kill him. I will never actually know, but I'm suspicious. Unfortunately, it was all very clever, and I did collude in a decision for a cremation as opposed to a burial. My mum is buried. I was rung by Colin and told that this was what Leslie wanted, but I don't recall ever having talked with Leslie about it. The conversation I had was with Colin. It was reported that Leslie's share of her dad's estate came to £27,000, but it later emerged that Howell had received another £212,000 from his wife's account. In the weeks before her death, Leslie Howell had told friends that the couple had so little money that she was unable to even withdraw cash from the bank machine. Her brother said... There was a large amount of money in Leslie's bank account. 
She'd not been working for several years, so this money is effectively unexplained. I don't know. I think my dad had been creating a means that Leslie could leave the marriage if that was what she wanted to do. I wonder, I wonder what happened here. How was certainly the access to the drugs needed to kill his father-in-law? He had the motive and, well, as we know, he certainly wasn't lacking on the cold and callous characteristics to killing cold blood. Since her husband's arrest, Hal's wife Kyle has moved away from Northern Ireland with their children and she's now living in Florida. She was investigated by Ulster Police for four years over the secrets she kept, but she was not charged. She said of her children, They are my number one priority. Everything I do, I do for them. I keep a journal and diaries about my life and I've come a long way. The healing still goes on, but now I sleep very well at night. Since their sentences, both killers have become grandparents and their children are all doing well in their chosen careers. Colin's daughter Lauren fully supports her father. Her brother Jonathan's feelings are unclear, but Daniel has been quoted as saying he's cut off all contact with his dad, adding, I was always dealing with the fact that she, his mum Leslie, killed herself and it was on my second birthday, so she didn't want to be around us. In our minds was the idea that our mum had abandoned us and we had to deal with that. For me, the fact it was my second birthday hurt me quite particularly, and that wasn't true. Meanwhile, Hazel's children continued to support her. Her son Andrew said, We love our father and mother. We are not taking any sides. We would not have wanted what happened to our dad ever to happen. But we lost our dad, and this nearly feels like we're going to lose our mum. We can't move on. So what do you make of what you've heard today? Sex, murder, religion, betrayal and retribution? As they say, sometimes fact is stranger than fiction. For me, what really stands out here at the core of the tale are the religious beliefs of Colin, Howells and Hazel. Should these beliefs have stopped them from embarking on their affair? Or are the feelings sometimes so strong that such actions are inevitable? And if the pair didn't hold such strong religious convictions... And if the pair didn't hold such strong religious convictions, would they simply have separated from their partners like so many people do every day, thereby avoiding the double murder? I wonder. And although Hazel continues to deny murder, I wonder how she feels right now lying in her cell. Is she regretting ending the relationship with Howells or meeting him at all? As for Howells, there is some insight into how he feels provided by the Coleraine Times newspaper, which revealed the detailed thoughts of consultant psychiatrist Dr Helen Harbinson after her conversations with Howell. Some of her thoughts, especially around his confession and mental state, follow now. Although he disclosed to his second wife Carl in 1998 that he killed his first wife Leslie, he now wondered if it was right to confess his crimes to the police. Some days he thinks he was right to confess, On others, he regrets it. At times, he feels selfish that he has confessed because he's distressed so many people. He thought that it would be important for his first wife's memory and honour that he should be so truthful. He also thought it was important for the Buchanan family. He believes, however, that he did not think his confession through properly or the consequences. He said the police also want to question him about two other deaths, the death of his father-in-law and the death of a woman in a caravan park where he stayed one Christmas when his wife and family were in America. 
he would deny any involvement in these killings. The psychiatrist wrote that Howell's mental well-being had improved and that he was preoccupied with religious and spiritual matters in a way that would be in keeping with his faith. I suggest that you read more of that report. There's some really interesting comments about his, well, as he sees it, his sex addiction, which is at the root of a lot of his issues. You can't help wondering whether he was responsible for other deaths, including his father-in-law. And however he feels now, it's his actions that have directly led to at least two deaths, but all the other people who have suffered as a consequence of his actions. Although now he is thinking in a religious and spiritual way, he certainly has a long time to ponder how he has behaved in his life so far. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please tell your friends and family, or why not join us in our new Facebook group. Check it out on my Twitter feed, or send me a note if you want to be added to the group. I hope to see you there. It's an all-round chat, not just about this podcast, but anything to do with UK true crime. And don't forget your pack from Harry's at harrys.com forward slash true crime. Until next Tuesday, when we speak again, cheerio. And remember, stay classy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.